Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Today we're talking with Dee Dee Davis, the VP of Informatics, Conformance, and Interoperability at the Sequoia Project, an independent, recognized, coordinating entity and advocate for nationwide health information exchange. In other words, her work helps make sure that the right information gets to the right place at the right time. In this episode, Didi gives us a short history lesson on interoperability and shares about her very cool, very extensive professional journey. She's kind of a rock star and I was really inspired by her passion and I think you will be too. So let's take a listen. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Joy Rios. We are here for the next episode of Hit Like a Girl Pod. And today our esteemed guest is Dee Dee Davis from the Sequoia Project. Dee Dee, thank you for joining us. I'd really like to hear from you. What is your piece of the health IT puzzle and how do you fit into the healthcare ecosystem, so to speak? First of all, thank you for the opportunity today. And thanks to him for helping arrange some of this. I grant myself a lot of blessings, I think, and being in the right place at the right time. So right now, my world is trying to improve the healthcare standards so that we can have ubiquitous exchange of information and truly be able to harness health information technology. I've kind of come to this role through a long journey of almost 30 years doing this, but I have been, I guess, very lucky to be in the right places at the right times to learn and be mentored from some of the best folks. So with the Sequoia Project, what we really are, our goal is to be a convener of public-private 
industry stakeholders around healthcare to really help improve the data usability, the public health aspect of it, the consumer aspect of it, being able to have the data actually exchange, but also taking innovation to the next level because healthcare is way behind a lot of other industries. So really trying to help move that needle. We are a recognized coordinating entity by the Office of the National Coordinator. So we're very working very closely with ONC as well as federal agencies and then just the industry in general. So we like to say that we're a third party neutral convener to help hopefully achieve some of that work. Well, so health information exchange is one of like the biggest challenges to interoperability and I kind of underpins a lot of what's going on with value-based care. How do we get the right information to the right people at the right time? Can you kind of speak in layman's terms around what that all means? How do you kind of govern data and make sure that it's readable by the right people or even the right computer systems? Wonderful question. So I found that technology is not the problem. It's really policy. So you need a combination of policies and the technical framework to be able to enable that. The policies need to engender trust. They need to make sure that everyone trusts that the data is correct, but also that it has not been manipulated in any way. So we've been very lucky. Sequoia, I don't know if you know, we started in 2012. So our our company was formed then. And we really were formed to take on what was known at that time as the Nationwide Health Information Network. So you mentioned Health Information Exchange. That was really the U.S.'s first entree into trying to do that. And ONC kind of incubated that, started that, and it really grew. The first data that was exchanged was between the state of Virginia and the Social Security Administration. And then it grew from there. So ONC, under their previews, it actually grew to be 23 different gateways. And a gateway could mean like an epic hospital system. It could be like a state gateway, like the state of Delaware or Vermont, who have statewide HIEs. But there were 23 of those types of gateways talking to federal partners as of 2012 when we inherited it. So ONC kind of incubated it for about three years. We took it on and we also took on the testing. So you have to make sure you hold each other accountable to implementing the standards-based processes that they need, but also making sure that they continually evolve and improve. So we inherited that and health information has now grown or exchange has now grown on the eHealth exchange, which is what it's called today. So real quick story, Sequoia, actually started the eHealth Exchange, but in 2018 spun that off as a separate, a whole separate company with its own board, its own governance. They are in charge of their own destiny per se. They were sustainable. And we actually helped incubate that to now today being over 300 gateways, all exchanging data, representing about 75% of the hospitals across the US. So that's kind of been sort of the journey. But in 2014, there was a need to have multiple networks. So the U.S. concept was have one Uber network, the eHealth Exchange. But that really wasn't growing as fast and because of its policies and requirements needed some innovation. So I think healthcare industry came together and you started seeing other networks pop up. So health information exchange networks specifically, like Commonwealth, like SureScripts or Epic Care Everywhere or Athena Health. 
all those different groups have their own networks, but they wanted to talk to each other network to network instead of just joining one network. So Care Quality was born. So we incubated that and started Care Quality, which now has 29 different networks exchanging data with 18 more in testing process who've all signed one policy framework known as the Care Quality Connected Agreement. It sounds very familiar if you've read the TEFCA regulations, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Connected Agreement. Very similar, but it was industry-led rather than led by the U.S. government. So we continue to help improve and give that feedback loop back to regulators like ONC and others so that hopefully these things continually evolve. So how much of this, okay, my perspective and where I see it is working with individual clinicians when they're trying to do their MIPS reporting and they have to say, I've done some health information exchange, which means there's an electronic summary of care that has been sent off to the, you know, a referring provider or received back from that other entity. And it's just that exchange of patient data that going from one EHR to another. And I have seen a lot of clinicians struggle with one, finding people to exchange that data with because they may not be part of the same network. Like they have a different system altogether and then their technology has different capabilities. And two, like not really knowing where to go or where to start. And so is that part of the solution that you all provide is kind of do you provide a directory or is there like a, a in, like a one-stop shop that somebody could go and say, I want to exchange data with whatever clinicians and then kind of take them through the roadmap of how to do so? Yeah, absolutely. So both the eHealth Exchange and Care Quality are separate companies, but that's exactly what they do. So it started with eHealth Exchange and they had one data sharing agreement that everybody signs. There's no redlining, no changing it. Everybody agrees to the same terms. And it's called the Data Use and Reciprocal Sharing Agreement, DERSA. That was what it was called. And everyone signs it. So that eliminates the need for business associate agreements and all that legalese. That is a barrier because to your point, finding somebody who you can exchange with requires all those barriers to be removed, which are mostly policy and legalese. Care Quality has the Care Quality Connected Agreement. Everybody signs that CCA, no redlining, no changes. Everybody agrees to the same terms. Now, that Care Quality Connected Agreement or that DERSA actually give you all the technical specifications of what you should do for each use case. And I mean a use case like query-based exchange, fire-based exchange, all those types of standards that are required for transport, but also the payload, the data itself, whether it's a DICOM radiology image or if it's a CDA document that's a structured document or fire bundles that are resources to send the discrete data. They outline that, but they also include the operating policies and procedures. So things like if there's a breach, you shall notify within X amount of time. All that's clearly understood. But when you sign it, you also pass that down to your connected stakeholders. So everybody lives in the ecosystem with the same rules of the road. And that's how the policy is included with the technical parts so that they come together. So when you're talking about whoever signs it, it's the vendor, right? The vendor is signing it and then they pass those terms of agreement onto the users of their software or technology. Is that correct? On care quality, it is vendors. Or it could be health information exchanges. There are health information exchanges. There are consumer app vendors. 
and there are vendors per se. That's true. On the eHealth Exchange side, it's mostly hospital systems. It's very much not a vendor world. It's more, while there are some vendor implementers, there are few and far between. Mostly it's health information exchanges. I think there are 62 HIEs that are on the eHealth Exchange or major hospital IDNs, hospital systems, and so forth that are large groups. So they sign it and they get a certificate. So you ask, how do you operationalize it? They all are given a certificate, which is trusted by each other to encrypt all this data. So it's secure across the pipe and end to end. And it's secured at the machine level. Not to get technical, but it's using TLS encryption. So identity proofing is spelled out so that you understand how will you trust it if it's a consumer? How do you identity proof that consumer? If it's federal agencies, what? how do you note or flag data that's classified or data you don't not supposed to share downstream, so forth. So all that's written out. The certificates encrypt the data, and we work with certificate authorities to issue those, and they're known as either care quality certificates or health exchange certificates. And then from the directory standpoint, you ask about that part, there are directories for both of those organizations, and those directories have what are known as endpoints. So everybody knows, kind of like in a phone book, You know how to call up somebody. You know exactly how to reach them because you have their endpoint identified. You already have the certificates. So if everybody's using the same certificates, when they knock on the door, they know to let them in and get the, you know, to receive the data querying for it or sending it out as needed. So they initiate queries and they respond to queries. In the fire world, we're starting to launch that somewhat. And we're working on trying to get imaging exchange, all using the same type of certificate directory infrastructure. So to be clear, we at Sequoia don't have any technology. We don't have a directory. We don't have any of that. We're really more the convener. We support these other organizations and others across the industry like Sheik and other consortiums like that that try to pull things together. But in operationalizing it, they do it very similarly both eHealth Exchange as well as care quality in that aspect. And if you look at what ONC is doing with FIRE, there's something called FIRE at Scale Task Force, FAST initiative. So we were working with them to pilot. For instance, on the eHealth Exchange, they're acting as an intermediary. So they do have some technology. They have what's called a hub. So when somebody onboards to the eHealth Exchange, they onboard one time. And they can talk to 300 organizations at once. All of that's understood with their vendor having to maybe configure their directory to match all the endpoints. And they may have to configure some stuff, but all of that is enabled right out of the gate. Okay, I have three questions. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I I, I feel like you might be a really good person to ask. These are genuine. One, is everybody nationwide kind of taken care of in terms of like, do they have access no matter where they live, there is an HIE that they can hop, you know, like connect to. Is there like, because you had said earlier that when this whole thing started, it was with 23 states and then we got up to, you said 60 something and now we're at 300, but does that cover everybody in the U.S.? So, or? Not yet. Okay. Not yet, unfortunately. So it's provider to provider. So it probably has, if you take care quality, any health exchange together, they're over 90% of the U.S. together combined. And eHealth Exchange is one of those networks on care quality. Okay. So if you take the combined aspect, there's 90% there. They're enabled. Are they doing it? No, 
Not yet. Yeah, great. Yeah. So, so there are, are, when you exchange this data, when you ask for it, you have to portray what is the purpose of use? Why are you asking for this data? Are you using it for treatment purposes, for payment or operations, which are HIPAA, treatment payment operations? Is it consumer access to it and so forth? Not everybody is yet trusting each other on all those purposes of use. Payers are the next group that we really want to bring to the table. So we're working with DaVinci and their work to try to enable that. I think the reason that it's been a little slow going is the clinical environments. When you exchange clinical data, it's everything. It's all the clinical data. And the payers don't necessarily need all of that. So trying to get the minimum necessary of what's required for the use has been something that the fire the fast healthcare interoperability resources is trying to do to help enable it so that you can get discrete data a little bit easier. So the pos- the highways are, they're gravel roads. <laughs> I love <laughs> they're that. They're not quite paved yet. That's the way I would say it. But progress is being made. I mean, s- progress is definitely being made and nobody expects all this to happen overnight. It is a journey and it's like, all right, we keep our eyes on the horizon. We know where we want to go. We got to do what we need to do in order to get there. But honestly, even as we go down the road, the horizon still in the distance. Absolutely. Like. <laughs> and we change. Um, exactly. You know, the new innovations change things. So you have to be nimble. But absolutely, it is. We're on a journey. And okay. I like, I coined the terms, we're taking baby steps. Because yeah. I've learned patients, I like to have things happen like immediately. I want it like now. And it's not happening quite as fast as I would like, but we are taking baby steps. So I am very happy that we are taking those baby steps forward. Well, and then, okay, so the other thing I'd like our audience to understand is I think that people that are in the industry are familiar with the term FIRE, but for somebody who doesn't know what that is, can you, in layman's terms, kind of speak to what is that and why is it important? Why do we care about FIRE? And even FAST, is that the acronym? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's another one. Yeah. Sorry about the acronym, soup. I try to spell them out. So FIRE actually started back in 2010, I believe, by HL7, the Health Level 7 organization, which have a large amount of the standards that are underpinnings for all this. The goal at that time was to take... Today, data is exchanged in what we call web services. So it's encapsulated in something called XML. And it's readable, but it's very machine codey looking. With FIRE, if you think about fast healthcare interoperability resources, think about if you've ever booked an airline ticket or booked Airbnb or booked a, you know, a Verbo, VRBO, or, or some sort of online booking or even shopping. Those are restful services. So if you think about it, you interact with some other computer system somewhere in the cloud or wherever, and you give it information, you log into it, you say, here are the dates I want, and here are the locations I want, and it brings you back an inventory of stuff. Think of FIRE as a way to do that with healthcare. So it's a way to query somebody using FIRE saying, I have Dee Dee Davis as a patient. Here's her demographic information so that you know how to match her on your side. So the matching part of that is done with standard implementation guides so that everybody knows how to exchange that. Once you match the patient, then you can say, I want Dee Dee's allergies. I want her medications. I want the problems that she has on her record so that I can get an intake. Like maybe they're taking me in as a new patient. That clipboard that you fill out, what if somebody could query that? from your own personal health record and get all that information electronically. 
they can do that today with your credit cards on Amazon and things like that. You have to be able to put the data in, but it has to be secured so that there's no malicious intent happening between it. So it's RESTful services being able to interact on the internet to match patients, to grab their data, to respond with data when somebody says, okay, you saw my patient, what was your encounter summary? What was your diagnosis or something to that effect? So getting that data to move back and forth. But it's not really any different than the traditional HL7 interfaces, if you've heard of those, which are ASCII, PIPAT type of look. It's the same data, it's just in a different format, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah, it does. So it sounds like it is also what helps, this is going to be my, my other question, that helps build the trust, right? Because mm-hmm. there may be multiple DD Davises, like even... Absolutely. Like even at uh, multiple DD Davises at a healthcare system. And so exactly. then making sure that, okay, we're talking about the right patient with the right address, zip code and problems, et cetera. And exactly. Then, okay. All right. Yeah. So that's the, the fire standards are the kind of Lego blocks is the analogy I use. So if you've ever played with Lego, there's lots of little blocks and you have to build them up to create whatever project ecosystem you're going to create, whether it's a castle or a car or whatever it is. So with FIRE, there's individual resources. Think of those as the Lego blocks that have to be bundled together to create the way to do this in a standard way. So FIRE is just an innovation of harnessing technology to do it a little bit easier so that you don't have to have all these servers that are more expensive to maintain and so forth. So there's still client-server interaction, but it allows you to do it in kind of, like you said, a more modern, innovative way. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Can we talk about you a little bit more? Can I get into, how did you get into this? What was your journey? Like, is this something that you always thought of like, data, this is my... This is my jam. No, this was kind of all a happy accident. I use the word serendipity a lot. That's been a word that I guess the best way to describe it is that I've been on a journey of serendipity for a long time. So as I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this for 30 years. So yeah, I'm dating myself. But kind of the, the quick recap for it. I started out of you know high school in my college. I knew I wanted to use computers. I knew I wanted to get my computer science degree. So that's where I started. And that was back in the 80s. <laughs> I graduated from the University of Tennessee with my undergraduate degree in computer science in 1987. And at the time, I was working for an accounting firm. So I was putting myself through college, kind of working and, and going to school at the same time. And so I had an, a real strong accounting background because I worked for a CPA firm and learned how to do taxes and bookkeeping and all of that stuff. So I started in the healthcare world, taking that company got sold. I didn't like the new owner. So I started looking for another job and I found one at the University of Tennessee Medical Center as a budget analyst. So taking my accounting background and transferring it to healthcare. Other than being born in a hospital, I knew nothing about a hospital and how it operated whatsoever. But I can say, and he's still alive today, my first mentor that really took a chance on me, his name was John Butler. He was the associate administrator of the hospital, and he had an opening for a budget analyst for six departments in the hospital. So they were the ancillary service departments, things like the radiology department, the pharmacy, materials management, which moved all of the the material goods like the 
you know, syringes and the, the things the nurses use in the way of materials. So the first week I started at the hospital, he actually started me introducing me to all the departments and he had me spend a week for the next two months in each department learning what they do, following trays on the food services up to the floor, following the pharmacists through their rounds, things like that. So I got to experience the actual workflow and understand because in, my, in his mind, you couldn't really know how to budget or know how to support departments if you didn't know what they did. So that's what started my healthcare background. I worked for the University of Tennessee Medical Center for three years and I'm an ambitious person. So I have always been that. And I wanted to kind of graduate up. And at the hospital is one of those things where unless somebody passed away or moved on, there wasn't a lot of upward mobility in my role that I was at which was fine for a couple of years, but I kind of wanted to move forward. So I started looking for another uh, position and I actually worked for first startup.com company that's still around called Omnicell Technologies. So I took a, a role there, which was an advancement for me. And I became kind of a project manager. I was a project manager, the second field person hired for the company, working with the salesperson to help understand how to implement machinery. And Omnicell really has point of use distribution systems that they have that have that lock up narcotics. If you've ever been in a hospital and you see a nurse wearing little stickers on them, those are charge stickers. Those stickers go onto a bill that then gets put in manually to bill that patient for all the things that that nurse used. This was in a way of electronically capturing that so that when you got those supplies out, you picked the patient. You said, here are the supplies by pushing a little button. So it inventoried, reordered those things automatically and charged the patient for it. Again, I used my healthcare background of where I worked at the hospital to start transforming that and putting processes together for implementation. Worked there for three years, became the regional manager over nine different states in the Southeast, implementing these machines in hospitals. Now, these were machines were big, six foot machines by six foot wide. So we had to work with hospitals maintenance department for construction needs because a lot of times we had to have power plugs put in for emergency power, the red plugs. We had to have sinks removed if it was going into an area of the hospital, it was a bathroom or something. So we had to find space for it. So the project management role wasn't just getting something put in. It was doing construction work. It was doing uh, capturing all those charge files so you'd understand how to put all that into the machine. So understanding all the data for the charging, the inventorying, all that. And I worked in, over those three years, I worked in operating rooms. So we installed in, in ORs. I actually watched surgeries because doctors were saying, if this thing doesn't work, I want her in the room for the first couple of weeks because if it breaks, she needs to override it immediately, things like that. So I had to work with all the different nursing floors, emergency departments, operating rooms. So I had my, I guess, kind of trial by fire. I got all of that background from all the different clinical environments all at one time over that three-year period. But as anything, I was traveling like crazy. Nine states. We were a startup company. We were really trying to get going. And I was literally traveling a hundred plus percent of the time. I'd been married for five years at the time. And after five years, I just, I literally, when I left Omnicell, I'd been home two weekends and three months. Wow. So it just, it wasn't balancing enough. That work-life balance was gone. And while I am a go-getter and ambitious and it, I would not trade it for the world, it just became too much. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. So I left there, worked for a consulting company 
and finally used my computer science degree. So I didn't use my computer science degree really when I started all this journey, because in my mind back then, to be a programmer meant you were locked in the basement and you never saw the light of day. And I'm a very social person and that just wasn't going to work for me. (laughs) So, but I left OmniCell and I went for a boutique uh, consulting company that wrote interfaces, implemented systems and made integration happen between them. And that's where I started actually coding. So that's where I got my technical chops and actually started interacting with HL7 interfaces and all of that and the standards and so forth. That company got purchased by Eclipsis, which is now all scripts. This was back in 1999. So we were purchased. And it was funny because at the time we were purchased, I was working for a very large insurance company. And I was doing integration work for them in this boutique consulting company. And I turned a contract that we were supposed to do like one interface for like $27,000, turned it into over a million dollars worth of services because they were very happy with the work. Happened to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was an only an hour, hour and 10 minute drive for me. And for the next year before the Eclipse was purchased, I spent going back and forth to get this whole project going. And I had multiple programmers all working with me with this large call center they were implementing. So when Eclipse has purchased us, Eclipse grew through acquisition. So they bought nine companies over the course of a couple of years, but they needed to integrate all those systems together. So when Eclipse has purchased us, I had the opportunity to become director of integration and architecture, which meant I had to learn all those 168 products, what kind of database they were on, what kind of computers they ran on. So I'd understand how we could start integrating some of them because they were billing systems, they were registration systems, they were um, you know, pharmacy systems and radiology systems. They were all different systems from all different companies that had never been integrated. So we had to do that work. So Going through that process, I had to go in front of hospitals and explain how we were going to do this when we implemented work and so forth. So I got to visit all the who's who of hospitals. I mean, I can say that I've been to NIH and spoken to them. I've been to Johns Hopkins and MD Anderson and NYU and Mount Sinai's and all the different Cleveland clinics and all the different hospitals. I've actually had the opportunity of going in front of these hospitals and finding out what they wanted to do. And letting them know how we could possibly do that type of work. So I did that about eight years. Yeah. Well, your career is basically as an Uber connector, an Uber connector of like of data, of resources, of different types of workflows, and then of getting bigger of organizations and and entire systems. How awesome. Exactly. And it's all been kind of happy accident because I just was in the right places and I always learned. So I've always been on a learning journey to try to always fix that. And I'm always one to try to optimize workflows and optimize the quality of data that you have and so forth. So absolutely. So after Eclipsis, I went to work for HIMSS. So I was volunteering for HIMSS at the time. And that's where I really started into my standards world. So today I'm very much a person that works with the standards development organizations, public-private industry, as well as federal organizations to try to make this happen in the U.S., but also globally. So I've been doing a lot of this work internationally as well. But I started my journey with integrating the healthcare enterprise, which is another standard organization. And I became, I was the only woman in the room on many of those standards meetings, because back in those days, you didn't see as many women leaders that were 
STEM or technology leader type folks. But I had the background. Eclipsus needed us to represent them at this organization. And I took over that role and I became a co-chair for the domain for the infrastructure, all that plumbing that makes this happen today. Did that for a couple of years. And then Hems really loved, I guess, my volunteer work and they made a job offer and hired me for, at the time, my dream job. So if you've ever been to the Interoperability Showcase at Hems, I yeah. created the yeah. concept for that and the business model working with him staff. Holy cow. So I was the co-chair for the first interoperability co-chair or first interoperability showcase co-chair while I was at Eclipsis. When I went to work for Hims, I took on the role of building out the showcase, not only in the US, but I launched the first showcase in Europe and the first one in the Asian Pacific region. So my role was director of information or informatics for IHE to roll out the showcase across all the different continents across the U.S. So working with other countries and so forth. And it was wonderful. Again, it was a wonderful thing. And there's a pattern here. I work myself so much where that balance, life balance didn't work out again. Because I was working with, you know, countries like Singapore or Hong Kong, Malaysia, I would be up at you know, ungodly hours of the night because their clock is completely different than ours. So I was literally working 80, 90 hour weeks. And I did that for several years and it just got to be too much. So then I started my own company called Serendipity Health. (laughs) And Serendipity Uh Health, I still have it today. So it's kind of my retirement plan in the future. I love my work at Sequoia and, and Sequoia was a contract of mine. But I, at that, during that time, I was the CTO, the chief technology officer for the state of Tennessee when we had five HIEs. I was an interim CEO for CareSpark, one of the first HIEs in the U.S. originally. And so I was able to do lots of different parts, but closer to home. My goal was to try to make a difference closer to home here in Tennessee. But when I left Tim's, no one in Tennessee knew who I was. Everybody knew me nationally and even internationally, but I really wasn't known locally. So I had to spend some time working locally here to get known. And that's when I joined the Tennessee Hymns board of directors and started networking with the folks in my state and and got lots of opportunities that way. And then during the very end of that 2013 timeframe, my contract with Sequoia was gearing up and they needed somebody full-time. And they said, well, Didi, we love your work, but we really need you to work full-time for us. Is that going to be a problem? And if it is, we're probably going to have to hire somebody else. And I did a lot of soul searching and I really loved what I was doing. So my company is dormant, but I've been with Sequoia since 2013 and I love what I do. And this organization, like many others, I've been able to finally find that work-life balance. It's very good, you know, good support. And I really love that we have a female leader and there's a lot of females in the organization. So I think there's a lot of that that helps inform, you know, the processes. Well, it sounds like you've taken a systems approach, whether it was intentional or not, of just like understanding how all these systems work together, even, you know, nationally and internationally, and kind of seeing how one affects the other. And whether you intended or not, just got totally wrapped up in how how much difference you're making, you know, like how much, how much your different, your efforts are really making a difference into like healthcare systems globally. Like that's got to feel good. I'd imagine that like, I know you've, and I really want to talk about work-life balance and how do you maintain that? But like, you must have this like huge bookcase of accomplishments with (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, accolades and rewards. Like I'm sure at the end of the day feels good, even though it's probably come at some self-sacrifice. It does. And that's why I said I wouldn't trade any of all those other roles because I wouldn't be here today if that didn't happen. But you're right. There's that passion. When you're passionate about work, you do such a better job at it. And I think my I'm, I'm a communicator at heart and I love fixing things. I love optimizing things because in my mind, life is too short not to do things the right way to begin with. So I'm always asking questions. And I also am not afraid to say, hey, this looks stupid. Why are we doing it this way? I'm very, you know, over my years, I've gained confidence enough. I'll say early on, I didn't. I was one of those that, oh, I don't know as much as this person because they went to this Ivy League college. Well, it's not that. It's, It's a team. It's everybody working together, really harnessing your strengths so that you can contribute, but also admitting your weaknesses because sometimes there's things that are not as good. Like I always tell the marketing folks, I can draft a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm going to be very verbose because I'm a communicator. I over communicate, but I can take and tweak something that they've drafted and put in the right bullet points. So I've learned what my weaknesses are. I let them draft things and then I add to it instead of doing it the other way around because I spend too much time. So I've learned how to optimize my time by not wasting it on things I'm not as good at, but then trying to hopefully back those things that I can make the bigger difference on. So, and sharing lessons learned. I always love to share whatever it is I learn, good, bad, and ugly. I share with everybody. So I, again, because if we share, then we'll hopefully not reinvent the wheel every time. Yeah, exactly. And leverage, you know, leverage lessons that have already been learned so we don't have to do that again. Like, all right, let's move forward. Let's go forward faster. Mm -hmm. I like that. Exactly. Well, so now that you're spending, I'm assuming, more time at home and in your local region, how are you maintaining your headspace? How do you keep balanced? (laughs) Great question. I've learned friends and family are very important. So make sure to always make time for them. And I think, you know, whether we like it or not, I haven't been on an airplane since February the 28th of 2020. And I flew to Washington for that trip. That's the last plane trip I've been on. I was only traveling maybe 30, 40% of the time at most. I was going about once a month someplace and internationally, maybe one trip a year. So it wasn't really bad, but I've learned with Zoom and all that, it's almost like I'm working more. But what I've learned to do is I have an office. When I'm in the office, I'm working. And I don't let myself get sucked back into work. So I stay out of the office during the weekends or the evening hours. So I've tried to compartmentalize that. Now, luckily, I've been working from home way before this pandemic. I, I've worked from home since the OmniCell days, so since 1994 when I started with them. And I've learned to do that part of it. I also have done more in the way of trying to get out for nature, just like all of us have. I love photography. I love birding. We were talking about birds earlier. I love birds. We've gone through, we have our third family of bluebirds moving into a house this week, actually in our backyard. So we try to have a little Garden of Eden birdie paradise for them. So I love sitting in our sunroom and just watching that and being, just trying to be. I will say I've gotten better at meditating, which I had never done before, but I've learned that it actually does make a difference. I love painting photography are my big two passions. So I've been doing more of that. So just trying to make time for me. And whether that's saying no to somebody, I've gotten better at doing that, or trying to make sure that if I, like a couple of weeks ago, I was supporting a testing event in Europe, because I run testing programs at Sequoia too. I didn't mention that before. And 
they were on European time. So I was having to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning. And that's just, I'm not a morning person anyway. <laughs> so that was really, really, really hard. But I made sure that if I did that, I quit earlier enough so that I could get my rest in and so forth. So I'm just trying to, trying to be a little more selfish and take care of me because it's okay to take care of you. Yeah, and it's not, it's not really selfish. It's really one of the more important things you can do. Um, yeah, you're no good for anybody else if you can't take care of yourself. Exactly. Sure. So I'm totally curious. What do you paint? I paint mostly landscapes, like trees, and and because I'm not very good, <laughs> I will say. I'm practicing as I go. But I've been trying. I'm not good at, I don't do people. I do mostly landscapes. I've taken my try at doing like butterflies, you know, birds. I haven't yet done because I know I'll butcher those. So trying to do things that are probably easy to avoid mistakes on but mostly landscapes trees sunsets over the ocean like that so I take pictures that I've taken and try to manipulate those well that's what I was wondering because like so I like painting too but you know during the pandemic I did some painting but it was really just like through my imagination trying to create I don't know, an experience of what I was going through. If there was a way that I could actually get it on the canvas, what my my emotional experience was, but kind of through nature. Anyway, that was kind of fun to sort of imagine. I'm like, there's no mistakes if it's just my imagination. Exactly. (laughs) But now I'm thinking of like, I've been to all these amazing places and taken some really cool pictures. And I wonder if I would kind of try to paint some of the, the photos that I've taken. So do you that's, like that? That's what I've done. Yeah, that's okay. what I've done. Now, they don't turn out as, you know, the, the picture, but you're, they're your interpretation of it. So who knows yeah. whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. If you don't show the person the picture you're painting from, they don't know if it's good They don't know. And it's not so, right or wrong anyway. Like art is for, even for art's sake, is just kind of exactly. And I've been uh, doing more YouTube, actually. Things like you can go online, like Bob Ross. You can paint with him now. Isn't that so, I don't remember if you remember Bob Ross, but oh, yeah. he's so calming, the happy trees uh-huh. and all those things. So getting some of the t- techniques from that kind of stuff. So trying to do little things like that that better myself to yeah. try to... Because eventually, when I do retire, I'm going to need to have these types of things to fill the rest of my day. So I'm trying to get to the point where I... Figure out what are those things that I really enjoy. So I love all of that. I really enjoy like getting into, well, obviously getting into nature, doing anything that just like feels and feeds my creative soul. But that it is one of those things that you also can bring into your work life too. It's like if, if you do feel more at peace, you know, you can kind of have more of a clear head to be thinking about what do you want to do for your work, which... Yeah, you can think outside the box more. You're mm-hmm. not stressed and you find that you can be more creative in work as well. Exactly. Like, I I anyway. They're not like a separate. I guess I want to finish up with a question around advice you would give for other women. And I like to be thinking around, you know, you've been through plenty on your journey. And I'm sure that it's come with challenges. You've already shared with like some of your lessons learned, but ultimately I want to know if there's anything that you have faced that you might help another woman hopscotch. Like if they could just skip over that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great question. And I have been asked that before and I've thought about that. And the first thing I tell folks, women are men, but women especially, cherish what makes you uniquely you. Figure that out. Because that uniqueness is something you can build on. But I also say that you need to spend time networking and getting to know other folks. So I always advise 
find other people that you admire or that inspire you or in some way make you, you know, your light bulb go on and try to get to know them. So that networking part of it, I'm really good about trying to that. And I'm always really good about helping mentor others. So, you know, asking for mentorship, but also making sure that you return it to others because you can always be a mentor to be to somebody else, whether it's somebody in your industry or somebody outside your industry, you can still mentor them. I also say that one of the things is to, so I already said kind of watching, you know, and working with strong women, but really trying to do relationship building. So if there is that goal, like with my journey, it was serendipitous. I really just kind of landed in all these different locations and places. But once I did, trying to build relationships in that so that I could then figure out where I could contribute the best. And then really last but not least, don't doubt your own strengths. Always know when you do have self-doubts, it's okay. Acknowledge it, but don't dwell on it. Figure out how to either overcome it or just ignore it. Sometimes, yes, I've been, you know, I love public speaking and all that. So I don't get nervous with public speaking and stuff. But sometimes I have been known like one instance, I was asked to speak to the National Institutes of Health. This was back in my Eclipsis days. And going in, I'm going, well, I'm talking to all these scientists. They know much more than me. Why are they inviting me here? And it was funny because it was very obvious when I went in for this meeting that, which we'd been trying to get for a very long time, there was one person in the meeting and they'd given us a 30-minute meeting. That's all they gave us. And we started talking and they started asking me questions. And I was, I won't say confident, but I came across, I guess, as confident. In my, my, in my own gut, I was very scared. I was scared to death because it, it was just one-on-one with this person. But it was funny because I was conversational and I didn't doubt my strength and I came across as confident and that turned into a four-hour meeting. So sometimes just exuding confidence, don't don't go in thinking you're not, makes a difference because you can actually get a lot more accomplished doing that. So making sure that you gravitate toward not doubting yourself. And if you do, don't show it. <laughs> I love that. It's not really fake it till you make it. It's just believe in yourself, really. Believe in yourself. That's yeah. a good way to uh, summarize it. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Well, Didi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. If people want to follow you or connect with you online or in the social world online, where, what would the best way for them to do that? I'm on Twitter at D.D. Davis, D-I-D-I-D-A-V-I-S. I'm on LinkedIn at D.D. Davis as well. I'm also on Facebook and things like that, but it's kind of a blend. I don't post on Facebook because I have like work and personal friends. So it's kind of weird. I don't necessarily interact that way, but LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the best ways to reach me. And I do tweet. I don't tweet every single day, but I try to tweet at least once a week. But yeah, definitely reach out to me and LinkedIn. um, You can see all my background and and so forth. I'm always willing to make new connections there. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time today. This has been a real pleasure getting to know you. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex, 
and if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.